Well, good morning, Hillcrest Church. Can you say good morning this morning? Great to see everybody this morning. Good-looking crew here on a post-Thanksgiving Sunday, which is always challenging enough. It's even more challenging when the rain is blowing sideways out today. But what a great crew we've got here this morning. Uh, and to those of you that are uh, watching online, continuing to view us from your home or your place of business, wherever you may be, and know that we're very grateful for you. And thanks for checking in, tuning in with us today. We are excited about the Lord. What a great time of worship this morning here at the Nine Mile Campus. I appreciate we've had a rash of sickness going through uh, some of our music ministry. And don't you appreciate these that are here this morning? Show some love to them. We are so grateful. And hope everybody indeed had a blessed and wonderful uh, Thanksgiving uh, day and Thanksgiving weekend celebration. I don't know if I've told you not I'm a granddad now. Have I told you that? First Thanksgiving with baby. First Thanksgiving with baby. Westmoreland's. I'm telling you, it just changes everything, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, you could say a nasty thing to me this morning. I just wouldn't care. I just wouldn't care. All right, you know, because I got a grandbaby at home. And I'm going to see him this afternoon, and I'm excited about it. I'm excited about you. God is continuing to do great things in our church. Even in the midst of challenging situations, these are challenging days. And, uh, you know, uh, we don't know exactly when we're going to turn the corner and get back to normal. It's probably going to take several more months, but uh, we're cooking right along. Amen. And we're very thankful for the goodness of God as displayed uh, in his people called Hillcrest. Well, we've got a lot to talk about this morning, and so take your Bible and uh, be, be uh, turning, if you would, so that you can follow along in Malachi chapter 2 this morning. Um, you know, the thing about the biblical prophecy is not one of them ever minces words, right? Uh, they don't sugarcoat the truth, uh, and so they just kind of toss it out there and are very direct because God's people are living in disobedience, and God wants His people blessed. And in order to bless them, his people need to obey him. They need to, if they're in a time of spiritual lethargy, a time when they've backslidden spiritually, they need to return to God. That's our theme here in Malachi. It's the key verse to interpreting properly the whole book. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. This is Malachi's burden for his people <clears throat> who, in the wake of returning to the promised land after a significant period of time where God chastised them and punished them by removing them from the land in Babylonian exile. They'd now come back. They'd had a time of great revival. But now they've fallen into bad habits again. And so God raises up another prophet in an, an additional act of grace. He once again comes to his people and lets him know that he's loved them. He's called them. He's chosen them as a special people unto himself. And he wants them to get it turned around because he wants to bless them and not harm them. He wants to bless and encourage them and not curse them. He wants them to shine a light unto the nations so that the world may know that there is one and only one God. And beside him, there are no other gods. And so Malachi, like all the other prophets, comes and hits hard. We're going to be dealing with some very direct truth today. But as always, we want to do, as the New Testament says, speak the truth in love, right? So tone matters, and 
We never want to sugarcoat the truth. And I'm going to be hitting some hard situations. But can I just say this morning, particularly with respect to our marriages, which we're going to talk about today, none of us are where we need to be when it comes to our marriage lives. We all fall short. We all miss the mark. And yet, God has this beautiful ideal where when followed in obedience, your home can actually be a slice of heaven on earth. Isn't that what you want? I know that's what I want in my life. So today we're going to speak a few minutes because obviously there was trouble at home and that's one of the issues that Malachi addresses. It was part of the backslidden condition of his people. They had corrupted things not only at the temple with respect to their worship, but they had corrupted things at home with respect to their marriages. So we're going to talk for a few minutes today on the subject, why trouble at home is troubling to God. Several years ago, I was with three uh, friends and associates from here at Hillcrest, and we were out having lunch as good Baptist men of God do. And we were eating low cholesterol, low calorie, low fat food. And uh, as the server came to take our order, she was wearing a badge that simply said, my hero is, and then there was a blank line that she had filled in with the name of her mother and father. That particular restaurant was running a, a series on heroes. And she handed us all a similar badge like she was wearing, labeled, my hero is. She said, now you boys fill in that line with the name of your hero, your most significant hero in life. And then you go online and register that person because they might win a $5,000 cash prize. So I was very careful because I wanted a piece of that action if my hero won the prize, right? So we set those aside. We were visiting about some things. We set those aside. And when our server came to bring us our bill, the end of our meal, she noticed that we had not completed those badges and she chastised us in a loving kind of way. I know you guys have heroes and I want to see you complete those. I want to see them on your chest before you go out the door. Or I'm going to tell the manager you skipped without paying your bill. And I said, okay, we'll do it. So we all took pen in hand and we all thought for a moment. We began to fill that in, pasted them. And what struck me as we were getting up and walking out the door was to a man, to a man of those four guys, all four of us listed our wives as our heroes. And we weren't, we weren't kidding about it either. First person came to my mind because that's the real deal. If I had to pick anybody in my life that has stood out as more of a hero to me for a host of different reasons. It would be my sweet little Judy, my prime rib for 34 years. She's my hero. It's part of the reason we've had a God-blessed home. And I hope she'd say the same thing about me if she had wandered into that restaurant. That wasn't the case, unfortunately, for most of Malachi's contemporaries here in Malachi chapter number two, there was spiritual drift, not only in worship, there was spiritual drift as it related to their commitment and the covenant of marriage. 
Compromise had crept into their spiritual life. Compromise had crept into their married lives. And Malachi is very quick to confront it, as we see here in the last half of Malachi chapter 2. The main idea of the passage uh, can be found beginning in verse 13. I'm just going to read a portion of it, and we'll come back and cover some of what I didn't read. But notice with me beginning in verse 13. Everybody ready to read? Say amen. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, well, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she's your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Father, today give us a vision not only of heaven and our risen Christ, who's interceding for us even now as we speak, But give us a vision of what our marriages and our families and our homes should look like and what they can look like when two of God's people are committed to doing life God's way and consistently abide in Christ as they walk in the Spirit of God. Be a great healer today, we pray, for your glory in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Now, you know that the Bible has a whole lot to say about marriage. We could go to a whole multiplicity of passages, Old Testament and New, and I've got about 30, 35 minutes this morning remaining, and time will not allow us to explore a complete and full theology of marriage, and so I'm probably going to leave out more than I include this morning. We're going to try to stay rooted to our text today. Because what we can do, I think, is understand from a biblical perspective the title of our message. Why is trouble at home troubling to God? Well, let me give you four things to consider from Malachi's perspective this morning. The first is very simply that marriage is a picture of the covenant. It's a picture of our covenant relationship with God. Now, let me just say from the very beginning that the primary issue that Malachi is addressing here in the end of Malachi chapter 2 is twofold. One, men are divorcing their wives, wives that they had taken at one time within the covenant of faith. They 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 are dissolving their marriages and casting their wives aside. And two, they were marrying women from outside the covenant community. In other words, they were marrying non-Jews from their pagan neighbors around them. So they were casting off their Jewish wives, their wives of the covenant, with whom they were one, joined together by the one true and living God. And they were connecting then, marrying, for perhaps a host of different reasons, women from outside the covenant community of faith, what Malachi calls the daughter of a foreign God. 
And you know what God calls that action, don't you? He calls it an abomination, which means God really doesn't like it all that much, right? Uh, The word abomination is a pretty harsh word, and that's how God was viewing what was happening there among his people around 420 B.C. Look at what he says in giving us the reason why in verse number 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Verse 14, the wife of your youth, she is your companion and your wife by what? Say it out loud, by by covenant. And so Malachi asks a very important question that forms kind of the backdrop of this entire paragraph. Why then are we faithless to one another? I mean, that's God knows why, but he's asking that kind of as a rhetorical question to cause the people to think. Why are we faithless to one another? And that's a question that can be asked, I think, not just about Christian marriages, but about Christian relationships in general, especially in this day and age. Have you noticed that brothers and sisters in Christ in this day and age, particularly due to and because of social media, I think, separate their friendships for the silliest little reasons anymore. And so we need to ask this question to all of our relationships in general. Why then are we faithless to one another? It just seems to me anymore that we can be laughing together and slapping each other on the back and scarfing down redneck egg rolls at Sonny's. Somebody say amen. We'd be doing all that one minute and then not speaking to one another the next. And sometimes it might not be anything more than a difference of agreement about wearing masks. Something crazy like that. You were my friend before we had this conversation, and I don't want to have anything to do with you. Why then are we faithless to one another? There's a reason that we should not be, and it's grounded in the first uh, two questions that Malachi asks here in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? If you're taking notes this morning, either in your Bible or on a note sheet or maybe on your smart device, write down the word unity, unity, because The thing that jumps off the page at me when I've read this passage, and I've read it scores of times over the past seven days, is the use of the word one over and over again. One God, right? One covenant, one relationship, one people. Has not one God created us, and in parentheses there, created us as one people. For in Christ, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. So there's an essential unity that connects the people of God. That's all of us. We're all connected as one. We're all part of one fabric, one community called into a covenant relationship from one creator God living in relationship with one father God, all formed as one covenant community by that one God. And as one, God designs us to live in what the Jews would call shalom, peace, a community of peace. 
And when we fail to live in peace and harmony with one another, what does Malachi say we do? You profane the covenant. Straight talk from the prophet of God. That word profane means to defile it. You defile the covenant. You pollute the covenant whenever you artificially separate from a Christian brother or sister in this way. So these are very serious words. Malachi is basically saying when we choose selfish desires or personal gratification over uh, serious covenant commitments that are required by God in our relationships, not only with God, but in our relationships with one another, Malachi is basically saying we're committing an act of treason. It's treacherous. We, we commit an act of treason against God by profaning our covenant with Him, and we commit an act of treason against a fellow brother or sister or against a husband and wife if it pertains to marriage because we go against the covenant that God has established that all of us as a unity in Christ because we share the same faith have in Him. Now, nowhere is that more significant or more true, of course, than in the marriage relationship, which is the closest relationship that we have this side of heaven outside of our relationship with the Lord. You know as well as I do that in this day and age, and it's been this way really since the 1960s for the most part, marriage is looked upon in our country more as a matter of convenience. It's an emotional thing more than it is a spiritual thing. Most people see it as what we would call a social contract, and you can enter into it lightly. I mean, you go get an Elvis impersonator to marry you in Vegas, baby. I mean, you know, it's nothing to it. Don't take it seriously. We just do it until it doesn't feel good anymore. We can break it whenever it becomes too much work or too inconvenient. But let me just say this morning that God never takes that position or anything anywhere close to it. Because marriage is not a contract between two people. It's part of the covenant relationship that those two people have with God. And it is part of a covenant relationship that's formed by God with them as husband and wife. John Piper writes these words, Biblical marriage is rooted not in the sand of emotional satisfaction, but in the rock of covenant commitment. And Malachi would say, amen, if he were hearing those words spoken from a pulpit. And he basically says the amen here in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14. The wife of your youth is your companion and your wife by what? Say it out loud. By covenant. That's right. In other words, marriage is by God's design, not by our design. By faith, we become one with God in and through Jesus Christ. And by covenant and commitment, we become one with each other through the sacred institution of marriage. And for us today, we would say that marriage is not only a picture of the covenant, but that marriage is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I say that at every wedding ceremony that I ever perform. I said it when I did the marriage of my own children. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. When a person is saved by faith in Jesus Christ, they become one with God in Christ, and God becomes one with them. 
Christ moves into their life, your life, and you move into Christ's life. And the first promise that Christ makes to someone who becomes part of his covenant community by the gospel are these words. Are you all listening? Say amen. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And marriage is supposed to be just like that. That's why we call it a picture of the gospel. Because just as we are in Christ and Christ is in us, when a husband and wife marry, they become in one another. And as the Bible says in the most important passage in the Bible on marriage, Genesis 2, 24, man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave unto his wife, cleave unto his wife, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one what? One flesh. That's right. So there's a oneness. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's not just Jim, Judy. When we got married, it's in the eyes of God, it's not Jim and Judy. It's Jim, Judy. It's all one word. Jim, Judy. Somehow supernatural. I mean, we're still two individuals, but somehow God sees us as one in covenant with one another. And this is God's design, and it's why Jesus said of husbands and wives in Mark chapter 10, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let man not, what? Separate. Okay? Y'all got it? Say amen. Oneness, part of a covenant unity designed by God. That's why trouble at home is troubling to God. There's a second reason, and that is because of the covenant nature of marriage. Believers are to marry only believers. Now, let me just say, not everybody in the room has probably done that. Some of y'all in the room have probably married outside of the covenant community of faith. And after this message, you're going to be tempted to think, well, maybe I just need to bail on this. No, you do not. Did you hear me? You stay married to the person that you're married with. Your role changes if you're married, if you're a believer married to an unbeliever. The role changes. The way you approach the marriage changes. But you don't jettison the marriage. That would be disobedience to God. And this, by the way, is one of the key relational sins of Israel at the time of Malachi. And again, it's stated clearly in verse 11. Here's the problem. Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Now he's going to define it. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. Now, you should know that that little phrase there at the very end, to marry the daughter of a foreign god, is simply to marry somebody that's outside the covenant community of faith. We would call that marrying an unbeliever. And there are lots of reasons why these men in Malachi's day may well have done that. They may have done it for self, selfish reasons, because they liked what they saw and they wanted part of that, you know. Uh, they may have done it for political reasons or for, for, for economic expediency. Maybe they were trying to cut a bargain with somebody that they were trying to engage in business. That's kind of the way a lot of marriages happen. Maybe they were trying to form an alliance with somebody to grow their business or to make a difference in terms of the relationship between the Israeli community and the neighboring community. Many times that contract would be uh, executed by one party giving a wife to the other party. And the, the person would take it because they didn't want to be an offense to the other person, even though God had said, whatever you do, don't do that. 
Because if you do that, not only will you violate the terms of the covenant and violate my desire for this to be a special people, uncorrupted by outside spiritual influence, there will be inevitable spiritual corruption that you're going to bring in your home because these women were worshipers of other gods. And that's a problem to God. They're going, they're going to come into your house and they're going to bring their idols with them. And then you're going to, you're going to cause a, a divine tug of war right under your own roofs because they're going to bring that false religious devotion when they come into your household. And God knew that was going to be a constant source of temptation from the very beginning of the time that the nation of Israel was led into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And that's why when he gives them the law as recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, God says to them through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, watch this, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not, what? Intermarry with them. I just don't know how that's misunderstandable. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And of course, that principle is reinforced in the New Testament with a very familiar passage that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be, in fact, let's just read this verse together, everybody together, out loud. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Here's the thing about a proverbial, what we call mixed marriage, which has nothing to do with race, by the way. Did y'all hear me? A mixed marriage is not people of two different races marrying together. It's a believer marrying an unbeliever. That's what the Bible knows as a mixed marriage. And, and part of the problem with that is you are in a relationship with somebody in a mixed marriage that you cannot have spiritual fellowship with. We don't have fellowship with unbelievers. We can't. Can you imagine being married to somebody that you can't have fellowship with and experience true covenant fellowship with? That's what he said. What fellowship has light with darkness? What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? This concept of the unequal yoking is a very familiar biblical image. It has to do with plowing a field which was done, you know, not by an international harvester, you know, $150,000 machine. It was done the old-fashioned way with a team of oxen. And the yoke was that wooden implement that went over the backs of the oxen in order to keep them joined together and functioning as a team. And the farmer knew that in order to get the best possible result in order to plow that field in a straight line, you better have compatibility under the yoke. And so what would he not do? He would not pair an oxen with a much smaller donkey. You know why? Because the plow is going to go this way. It's not going to be productive. It's not going to be 
fruitful. And this is why it's applied to the marriage relationship. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that's just a word not only for marriage, it's a word for any kind of intimate friendship. I would say to apply that to your business partnerships. If you're looking to form a business partnership, you better not form one with somebody that doesn't know the Lord if you do. Because you're going to bring a competing worldview into that business. You're going to bring a competing worldview into your home. That's what typically happens when a believer marries an unbeliever. There's this inevitable tug of war of competitive worldviews. And by worldview, I'm simply referring to a way of looking at life, how you filter what happens in life, how you understand God, how you understand people, how you understand decision-making, how you understand stewardship how you understand the Bible, how you understand eternity. That, that's a worldview. And ours, of course, is a biblical worldview. Our way of looking at and understanding life is a biblical worldview. We get it from the Bible. And when you have a, an incompatibility in a marriage relationship, you have two different worldviews trying to coexist under the same roof. And it's not that it necessarily can't work. It's just not going to work very well. And would you not agree with me that marriage, listen, marriage, I've been married 34 years. Marriage is challenging enough when you've got two born-again believers trying to strive together, living together under one roof. Amen. You bring a competing worldview into that situation, it's going to cause friction in virtually every area of your lives. How are we going to spend our money? How are we going to give our money? Are we going to honor God with how we use our money, or are we just going to spend it all on ourselves? It affects what you read, what you don't read. What can we watch together on television? What can we not watch? Y'all tracking with me? How do we make decisions about buying this car or about taking this job? It'll have a world of import on how you raise your children when there's differences in terms of worldview. But the bottom line is, it affects just about every decision that you make. Because the bottom line, for those with a biblical worldview living in a marriage relationship, the first question is, as it pertains to seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, the first question is, how will this decision best honor and glorify God? And if you've married an unbeliever, that's not even a part of the equation. It's how does it best benefit us, the retirement plan, the checking account, the savings account. Y'all tracking with me? It affects every area of life. And this is why you have to determine while you're single. This is why we have all these meetings before we marry people at Hillcrest. It's the first question I ask. Tell me about your Christian testimony. First question we deal with, before we ever start talking about the marriage, I need to hear about your relationship with the Lord. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. But you have to make that decision while you're single. That's why this message touches everybody in the house in some way. Because you have to determine, I'm not going to compromise the covenant. I'm not going to marry someone 
who doesn't love Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who isn't committed to pleasing God with the way they live their life. Now, this is important because there's a third principle, and that is infidelity to the marriage covenant hinders our worship of God. If somehow you as a believer get dragged in to the pull of a secular worldview, it will inevitably affect your worship of God. What Malachi affirms here, and again, this is the big overarching issue in Malachi, is how their worship had become corrupted, led by the priest. I wish I had more time this morning. I'd take you back to the book of Ezra and show you how in Ezra chapter 9, the priests were doing the same thing back then. They were marrying. The priests were marrying foreign women who worshiped other gods, not just the people. And so this is a huge issue in the nation of Israel at that time. And what Malachi affirms here is that marrying somebody outside of the covenant community or to unbiblically divorce a spouse is an offense to God. Why? Because he considers that corrupted worship. To marry an unbeliever and invite a foreign unbiblical worldview into your home is not only what God calls disobedience, it's actually an act of idolatry. You say, Pastor, how can you say that? Because you've made a decision that what you want is more important than what God wants. And whenever you cast aside intentionally what you know to be God's clear revealed will to do what you want, that by definition is idolatry. And this is why it becomes an offensive act of worship to a holy God. There are spiritual repercussions. In fact, look at verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Spiritual consequences to doing these kinds of things that Malachi is illustrating. And those spiritual repercussions primarily act as hindrances to our fellowship with God and to our worship of God. That that thought is continued here in verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Now these verses just reflect the high spiritual price that husbands were paying back then for their disobedience. God wasn't accepting their offerings. They were coming. They were trying to do what the law said. But Malachi had already pronounced their worship corrupted and spoiled and not accepted by God because of their spiritual compromise. And now we learn further that God was not accepting those offerings because of how those men were treating their wives, casting them aside to marry foreign women. Malachi says, your garments are covered with violence. The Hebrew word violence is hamas. 
Anybody ever heard that word before? That's in the news all the time. It's a terrorist group. Hamas. Violence. You've covered yourself with it by tossing your wives aside and by doing injury to them. And by doing injury to them, by extension, you do injury to God. It was violence against the wives and that it created havoc with their lives. Listen, those women had nowhere to go. They would have been social outcasts. No way to earn a living. Women couldn't do that. No social safety net, no social security, none of that stuff. And so they were doing violence to these wives who had no means of community support, little respect in the community. But it was also violence against God because it it corrupted the covenant. It spoiled the covenant standard for committed marriage that came from God. It was God's design. One flesh in covenant for life. And the result of that, when it's compromised, is broken fellowship with God. Look at what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you, part of the covenant community. They're heirs with you. Not only is she your wife, she's your Christian sister. And not only is he your husband, he's your Christian brother. We don't break faith with Christian family, whether we're married to them or not. They're heirs with you of the grace of life. And then watch the consequence if we turn our back on that. So that you're what? Prayers may not be what? So that your prayers, do you see the cause and effect? God gives a positive prescription. And notice these words by Peter. Live with your wives. Understand your wife. Show honor to your wife. Understand the connection you have with your wife as part of the family of God. Fail to do that results in a hindrance of the worship of God so that your prayers may not be hindered. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Here's what you got to understand. To break faith at home is to break faith with God. That's why trouble at home is indeed troubling to God. Now, one last thing, and we're done this morning. Believers are to guard them. This is kind of a summary. Believers are to guard themselves and remain committed to the marriage covenant. That word guard is used twice in verses 15 and 16. And it reminds me of one of the most important verses I memorized many years ago. I often write it in gifts that I give, books that I give, cards that I send, Proverbs 4.23 Above all else, above all else, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And now here comes Malachi, centuries after that verse was penned by Solomon, using the word guard, stand guard, guard yourself. Look at verse 15. 
Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. That's just a great statement. It reflects, once again, the spiritual nature of the marriage covenant and why it needs to be entered into seriously and and thoughtfully. Because one of the God-designed purposes of marriage here, as it's described, is that godly offspring thing. We're kind of celebrating that in my family. It's not mine, but it's ours from mine, from my daughter. Produce godly offspring. There was a reason that the first command that was given to the first man and woman who were joined together in the garden, Adam and Eve, the very first command given to them was what? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. What was one, the one God seeking? Godly offspring. That doesn't mean you have to have kids, but it is one of the purposes of marriage. Family. God wants us to fill the earth with godly image bearers who testify to the grace of Christ. Now, we had not been doing that very well in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ over the last hundred years. Fill the earth. Train your child. Train a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. And through his testimony, many others will be impacted by the gospel. So God wants us to have children, and children should be developed into mature Christ followers. Listen, you don't get married and you don't have children because you're looking for a life accessory. Marriage is not meant to accessorize your life. It's not made to make you feel better about yourself. We join ourselves to a spouse and we produce children as acts of worship to the one true God in order to bring honor and glory to His name. If I were to ask any young couple in our church, why do you want to have children The answer would be incorrect if it had anything to do with them, at least first. What's the right answer? Because we want to bear a child in the image of God that we can raise to know and love God and serve Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the right answer. Godly children. That's the point. And not only that, we need to remember that because marriage is a picture of the covenant, it's a picture of the gospel and our unity with Christ, our oneness with Christ, God declares marriage to be this indivisible relationship designed for life. The two shall become one Flesh, And it's that one flesh principle that makes divorce a problem with God. Because one flesh is not meant to be divided. And this is why whenever I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, which we always require at Hillcrest, I tell the couple, here's the thing. You don't have to do it here in front of me, but before we do this wedding, you need to be able to look at one another and you need to be able to say, divorce will not be an option with me. And if you can't say that, we probably ought to put the brakes on this deal at least for a while. Because if you can't say that, you're going to bring a parachute into the marriage with you. 
And if you have one, you've just increased the likelihood exponentially that if the situation got bad enough, you'd pull the ripcord and it'd be done. That's at this point, many will say, well, wait a minute, what about those New Testament exceptions to it? Everybody wants to talk about the exceptions. Nobody wants to talk about the standard. Everybody wants to talk about the exceptions, the escape hatches. And there are two very narrow ones in the Bible that frankly, are y'all still with me? Say amen. Frankly, have more to do with appropriate remarriage than anything else. More than they have to do as an out of the relationship. But I don't have time to go there this morning. We'll have to save that for another time. This passage in Malachi has only one theme regarding divorce. And you know what it is, don't you? Just don't do it. He doesn't talk about any exceptions here. And even the two that are mentioned as permissive in the New Testament, they're not the ideal response. God would say these are here to prohibit the stigma of adultery in any subsequent remarriage. But what would God's will be? Work it through. Work it out. Repent. Forgive. You say, well, we just have a bunch of irreconcilable differences. God has those with you too, by the way. A bunch of them. And it didn't stop him from saving your life. It didn't stop God from showing you grace. No, the ideal response is the one that will best honor God. How can we best honor God in how we continue to approach this marriage? And that always must include repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation and a commitment to walk in an abiding relationship with God. As summarized by Paul at the very end of his very lengthy passage on marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. Notice 1 Corinthians 7 and 10. To the, marriage, uh, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. That's the ideal, which helps us better understand why trouble at home is troubling to God. And the solution is to do exactly what Malachi says as he concludes the passage. Guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife or to the husband of your youth.